Hello and welcome back to The Vincast. My name is James Guestbrook, also known as The Intrepid Wino. And boy, oh boy, has it been cold here in Melbourne lately. We are well into winter now. Um, it's pretty quiet out there. Um, you know, the people aren't as out as much. I think probably hiding away from the cold a little bit um, in front of the heaters or the fire. Um, but that doesn't mean that um, there aren't lots of things going on. Um, recently, we uh, obviously people around the world, particularly in the US, celebrated Independence Day, the 4th of July. Um, and is uh, uh, Bastille Day, or well, they don't actually call it that in France, it's just the 14th of July, um, coming up uh, not too far away. So there's lots of lovely events happening for that. I do suggest keeping an eye out. Um, there's a number of French restaurants around Melbourne, I'm sure. Same thing in, in every capital in Australia, or probably internationally. You should um, definitely look into uh, ways to, to celebrate um, the French National Day. Um, and so uh, for today, I've actually brought, uh, I've invited uh, a guest who, um, like some of my other previous guests, has a background as a sommelier, but uh, a number of years ago decided to uh, try his hand at actually making wine himself uh, after many years of experience um, assessing wines, tasting wines from around the world, uh, decided to um, experience it himself. And, and, and several years ago, um, decided to pursue that full-time. Uh, his name is Adam Foster. Uh, I'm sure it's a name that uh, many of the listeners would be familiar with. Uh, and so, yeah, I've just sort of invited him to talk about himself, his background, and, uh, and some of the projects he's working on at the moment. So thank you for joining me today, Adam. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, so, Adam, uh, tell me, where did it all start for you with the wine? Wow. Um, the first interaction with wine, how did you uh, get introduced to it and to decide to pursue a career? I suppose in wine? the uh, really, really going back to the start, which uh, you've probably missed one of my careers before my career, other oh, career. Okay. So I am actually a chef, trained, qualified of course. chef. I remember now. <laughs> so I did that for about 10 years. And I suppose when I was an apprentice chef, I realized that um, a lot of chefs didn't have very good palates. And I. I thought that was odd that someone making all this beautiful food, but they can't actually enjoy or understand the wine and the process of what makes a good wine. Yeah. So I think while I was an apprentice chef, I started studying as much as I could on my about wine on my days off. So I did you know, my wine appreciation course with Trembath and Taylor back in you know the early nineties. Mm, I a lovely uh, introduction to Italian. Yeah, and you know worked with the late. I'm uh, sorry, did a course with the late um, Colin Richardson, who was a legend in the day. And so I got a real bug and taste for it. And then you know every spare cent I had, I started buying a wine, putting it away for that day. Then when I opened the restaurant, I would already have this amazing salad. So. Sure. Basically, that all happened, and I've still got most of the wine. Um, what, I, what I haven't drunk, that is. But the whole idea then was, uh, I don't know, it came, I always knew I was probably going to make it one day, but it was going to be my, you know, as a cook, as we've seen in television and MasterChef and all these other, it's lots of pre- stress, lots of pressure, really hard on your body and mentally. So I always thought I'd be retire from the kitchen at about 37 and then I learned to make wine. So that was my in my plan in my head. But uh, where were you doing the apprenticeship and training? Uh, so apprenticeship was all based in Melbourne. So with people from like, Melbourne originally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So born in Melbourne, grew up in Bendigo, then moved to Melbourne when I was 
finish year 12. Sure. So did apprenticeship at the Continental, which was owned by the Mario's, as in the Mario's and um, Brunswick Street. Yeah. So they own that, which is... The Mario Brothers. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, So worked there, worked for Jeremy Strode and worked for Michael Bakash in my apprenticeship. Sure. So did all that and then went straight to Europe, worked two and a half years in Michelin Star Kitchens and then came back and... Then basically I was head chef of the Lake House in Dalesford in 2001 and 2002. And that's when it sort of all changed. So I decided not to open a restaurant, but to go and learn how to make wine from scratch. So I got a job with Torbrick in Barossa in 2002. So I went across there, which was a, a very turbulent situation in that year. I think that was the year he went bankrupt twice in mm-hmm. the six months I worked there. Yeah. But then that started leading doors. So then I got a job in Chaputier in Hermitage in the Rhone Valley. And then every year for the next three years, I did two vintages a year for, for three years. So basically sort of double learning my knowledge twice per year instead of waiting a whole year to do another vintage. So I did that for four years. And then I suppose that's where it all started. Then then I thought, well, I'll buy some grapes, make some wine. And then, then once I'd done that in 04, I realized there's a cellar rat which is what they call the schlerper that, you know, the schlepper that does all the cleaning and that in the tank. So um, I didn't earn much money. So I thought, how can I earn more money and still drink good booze? So it was like, become a psalm. I get paid to drink. So yeah. that's how that started. So then and, and did that for about... To taste yeah, so and... then did that for about five years. Right. And then now I'm with Cyrami and Fostery Rocco that... Uh, that's what I do. So it's my 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 hobby has turned into my love and passion, and now I'm employed to do what I do. So. Okay, so you've very much you've fast forwarded through a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, there. yeah. Okay. Let's take it back okay. a little bit. Okay. So um, when you started to kind of um, get into the wines more and appreciate the wines um, yep. back when you were working as a chef, were there particular wines you kind of found an affinity for? Did you, I, I think having that approach as a mm. chef and always thinking about, okay, how does this improve the experience of the food? Yeah. Um, did that kind of play into the kind of wines you were uh, enjoying and, and appreciating more? Well, I think in hindsight, probably the wines that I was enjoying would probably, well, I look back to in today now and probably think they weren't the wines. They're not the ones I drink now. Put it that way. So sure. probably more your classic Australians. Yeah, yeah. I, look at, I, look at, I look at my cellar and it's exactly the it's same. It's the same. Everyone does it. They get weaned on the, you know, the big juicy riper things and it was great. It really sucked you in. But then you started learning. Well, the iconic Australian ones, I yeah. guess. Yeah, you know, like you know, Jasper kind of and Dalwinnies yeah, and 389s not, and Not you know, the great and, wines, but, you know, yeah. as your palate evolves, I guess you kind of... I'm always the same. Like, I, I always want something different and something new. Yeah. I look back on my cellar now and kind of go... Oh, yeah, okay, I've, I've got yeah. those. You're not maybe not as excited about them. <laughs> yeah. So I think from that, obviously, and then that, um, you know, the chefs I worked with were always, you know, it's sort of their food was very refined. Even, you know, Toofies was always about, you know, just very simple fish on a plate was yeah. nothing else. Yeah. Um, Jeremy Strode was the same way. So I think from that it was honing my palate before I knew that what I was going to get into later in life. So yeah, okay. all those little steps help, you know, nurture you and along the way. And then, you know, you work with a som when you're in the kitchen and someone says, try this and you go, that's delicious. And I think from there, there were all the little baby steps that have made me, I suppose, I suppose where my palate is today. Sure. So. But I, I guess at the same time, 
when you start with those kind of iconic wines or those iconic styles, particularly mm. of Australia, they make pretty good building blocks. So you get a pretty good understanding about regionality and yeah. varietal difference, that yeah. kind of thing. To then you basically graduate to a new level where you go, okay, well, what's 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 above yeah, that? And exactly. What are, um, like into smaller areas, like yeah. sub regionality, or yeah. you know yeah. uh, how how the microclimate can af- affect the wine. Yeah. Um, that certainly was, was my experience. Well, I think for me, that was one thing. Obviously, I, as you heard, I was, you know, grew up, grew up in Bendigo. So I sort of take myself a bit of a Bendigo boy. And, you know, when you got lots of good wineries around us in the day, making some really great wines. And one of them back in the day was Jasper. So it was the one that I really took in because in the day, back until I think 97, they were still classified as Bendigo. Heathcote hadn't branched out as Heathcote. So... For me, it was sort of that was, oh, that was the iconic wine of the region. I liked it. I started buying it every year, started understanding it. Yeah. Oh, and then that sort of taught me about terroir slash single vineyard, you know, letting the wine make itself sort of thing. And I think sure. that's sort of what inspired me to look at other wines of similar ilk, you know, sort of the single vineyard, sort of single vineyard wines as opposed to multi-regional or multi-state sure, blends. So sure. yeah. I think that was sort of what honed me into going down that path. And obviously once you go to Europe and you start tasting European wines from Burgundy and the Rhone, they, you know, literally are of single, you know, single little paddocks or not even paddocks, just literally rows on a, on a, on a hill. So yeah. I think that's what excited me about seeing what that would do. And I think today it's sort of what still drives me. It's about the whole essence of, you know, great grown as simply as possible in the ground then made respectfully and as simply as possible i think that's sort of a lot of the wines i enjoy now are based on those philosophies so. sure and even those kind of initial experiences working in cellars um you worked in a, yeah. a Torbrek, obviously yeah. a kind of a cult barossa valley yeah. uh producer working with rhone varieties and yeah. then going and working for chaputier yes. in the rhone valley yeah um did you have a sort of an early on, did you have a connection with the Rhone variety? Yeah, I think I'd, I sort of, you know, after a few years of collecting as an apprentice chef, I realized I have a lot of Shiraz. I must sure. like Shiraz. So, well, there is a lot of good Australian. Well, Shiraz, that was sort of what weaned me. And I think from there, that was the, the real thing it was like, well, I do love Shiraz. I love it, you know, from all shapes and sizes. And then I think that's what really made me think about, well, the whole idea, what I did basically when I was finishing Lake House and, you know, as head chef, I was 27 years of age running a, you know, one of the two hat restaurants. So it was a big responsibility. I was throwing it all away, all that salary and to go and be a seller at know nothing. So sure. it was a really big thing. But what I did was always followed my heart. And I think the main thing for me was, well, at the time, I, I remember there was only seven wineries in Australia I wanted to work for. Which, okay. <laughs> and I, I had the Jeremy Oliver gold book, you know, is that the Jeremy or Jamie Oliver? Uh, Jeremy Oliver. Jeremy yeah, Oliver. Yeah, no, Jer- that's not the gold one. That's, um... Well, the Jeremy, it was Rob, the Jeremy Rob Oliver Gettys one. No. Yeah, it was, it was the Jeremy Oliver one anyway. Sure, sure. I had. So I remember looking through it and there was only seven wineries in it and two of them were in Margaret River. So I thought, well, that's a bit too far. <laughs> so I just, you know, rang Ron Lawton and he didn't need anyone. I rang Torbrek and... They said, yeah, no problem. And I was like, okay, well, I got it on my second go. So that was that was quite good. But um, then from there, it was just picking who I wanted to work with. I wanted to go to the Rhone. I worked with Chaputia. And then I wanted to work in a big winery to understand 
about what happens in a big one as opposed to something small. Sure. So I went to Mitchelton in um, Nagambi mm-hmm. to work Which for Don Lewis. Central Victoria. Yeah. So I really wanted to work with Don because he was an old established, you know, I shouldn't say old. Sorry, Don, if you're listening to this. <laughs> but, um, you know, he was someone who had been around for a long time, understood everything about, you know, winemaking and, you know, marketing in that sense. And I wanted to go there. And then from there, went back to the Rhone and worked for Stefan Ogier, who was a real up-and-coming guy in the Rhone Valley. And, sure. And then back to Heathcote Winery, um, which was to get my foot in the door of Heathcote. Yeah. Um, that, that was the year I bought some grapes off them to make my first ceremony and then uh, went across to Pierre Gaillard and the Rhone again to sort of sort of finish that schooling. And then um, – so from those producers, they're ones that I loved and I love their wine. So for me, I you know, I could never do anything I would – I didn't want to enjoy or I didn't enjoy. So for me, it was literally just just honing in on what I thought were the best producers in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they were it at the time. So, But but continually working with particularly Shiraz. Do you think, yeah. no, um, considering that Bendigo and Heathcote, um, where you grew up, yeah. are uh, regions that are so closely connected with the Shiraz grape, do you think that sort of played into it at all? Yeah, I think... Or, or I, well, obviously, yeah, because obviously, you know, while I was an apprentice chef, I was still collecting Jasper Hills, you know. I, sure, sure. Uh, I remember, you know, I've got a great story. I remember buying, walking up to King and Godfrey because I saw this magnum because I worked at Toofies and uh, yeah, just I saw the, the yeah, so I saw this magnum there and I was like, oh, I'm going to buy that for my collection. It was a 1992 magnum of George's Paddock and um, Paul Tusker that was there at the yep. time and... He sold it to me. It was $90. I can still remember it. Oh, my God. I still own the bottle. Really? I have not drunk it yet. Okay. And I bought that in, I reckon, 95 or 96. I would be interested to know what the alcohol percentage of that wine was. Well, that's, that's, we'll get to that a little later. This past weekend, on my my birthday lunch, I opened up a magnum of 92 Hanging Rock. Ah, yes. 12 and a half percent alcohol. Exactly. Yep. It's astonishing how much has changed since then, but yeah. anyway. Well I, have a th- well, I can get to that theory. I have the theory <laughs> about the blow-up of Heathcote, but anyway. Yeah. But you, and that was the thing. I've still got that wine in the cellar. Sure. You know, and, and bought, buying it back then. But I remember I was so excited. I got home, and I'm like, look, oh. I even – and I saw the number on the back, and I rang to put my name on the mailing list, and I just told Ron. I said – and Ron answered the phone. I said, oh, as in Ron Lawton? And he goes, yes. And I said – Oh my God, this is, uh, I'm, my name's Adam and I just bought one of your wines and which one? And he said, Magnum of 90. He goes, Oh, that's definitely a keeper. Don't, you know, yeah, don't sure. go opening that. Yeah. I said, I was wondering if possible to put my name on the mailing list. And he goes, No problem. I, I was, I couldn't even believe that. So I think from there, I would have had a little sweet spot. And obviously, I love Shiraz. And then yeah. obviously, every year, I started buying a case of George's every year mm-hmm. to put away. And I think from that and understanding and seeing the wine, especially age, over the years sure. was the real thing that um, that hit home about the, you know, I suppose what I was saying about my philosophy now about single vineyard and single clone and doing stuff like that. When you were working as a chef and you worked over in Europe, where, where were you working? So all in London. So I went across to open uh, Sir Terence Conran's restaurant, which was called The Bluebird I'm, mm-hmm. on Kings Road in Chelsea. I, I'm assuming it's still there. Um, and then I went across... Oh, then after that, I worked at The Square, which is a two-star Michelin, um, Philip Howard's place, which was an amazing experience. And then I opened their third restaurant for them called The Glass House in Kew. 
Um, I was there for about six months, but it was sort of before I was coming home anyway. Sure. So, um, yeah, so that was it. And when you were working in London, uh, in fact, yeah. you know, I just had uh, someone on who had a similar experience working yeah. in hospitality yeah. uh, in London and found it quite different in terms of as a wine market and the kind of wines you get uh, exposure to. Oh. Did you have the same experience? It was in incredible. Like, you know, I London, I every time I went to the shop, I was buying something, you know, like I remember I bought my first Chateau Moussa you know, from Lebanon and, wow. you know, and I'm like, I'd never even knew Lebanon made wine and yeah. I'm drinking it. And I'm like, it's actually pretty cool. And I, you know, I was also, while I was there, I actually did my level three. It was, uh, Wesset. Sure. So I was at a two star Michelin on my day. I asked the chef to give me every Monday night off. And for 16 weeks, I went and did my high certificate. So, Far out. yeah. So I ended up passing him. Well, I, I got a C, I remember, which I was, <laughs> I was like, it was still a pass. They said, no worries. And I was like, it was very, you know, literally MW's teaching you every week. It was wow. incredible. So yeah. that was a real eye opener as well. We got to see wine, you know, you can literally, you know, from Slovenia through to Croatia, stuff that, you know, you just, well, nowadays you can see it. But back then, for an Aussie 21 year old, it was an absolute eye opener. So, and, you know, obviously I think the two great region, places in the world to drink amazing wine is London and New York, and part of the reason is because they don't produce wine. So they're very open to everything. And I yeah. think when you go to those two places, it's like I'm a kid in a candy shop. It is just what can I try, what haven't I seen before? And I think that's the really unique thing about especially London. And I think that's it for all, you know, I mean, you know, I mean like over there, like, you know, obviously – in this country, a, a good bottle of wine, you spend about 25 bucks. You know, that's what most people or some people spend. When you go to Europe and you're spending not even five euros sure. and you're getting a really good bottle. Yeah. So that's the amazing thing. And even when you go to, you know, anywhere in Europe, you're drinking really good wine for yeah. five five euros, which yeah. is astonishing. So uh, I think that's the, the good things over there. You get to see a lot more wine without busting, you know, your bank balance too much. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were living and working in London, did you get to travel very much? Did lots. That was that. Other than cooking for great people, it was every time I had a a time off, I would go somewhere. So it I a, pretty much did the whole of excursion. Europe. So yeah, multiple trips to France. You know, Greece, Germany. You know, Spain multiple times. Just traveled a lot whenever I could because obviously the kitchen's very demanding and you know you work those long hard hours but sure. as soon as you get a couple of days off and you could you just jump on a plane and go to Amsterdam for two yeah. days like yeah. it was that easy <laughs> it was like you know I remember I had four days off in a row and or five days I think I ended up taking but I went to Greece mm. it's like I'll fly to Athens I haven't been there so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it was all very easy very accessible and very inexpensive because of the flights you know because mm. there were so many flights going everywhere so that was the other great part about going to London it was to open up and see see the world before um when you were working as a chef um both in Australia and over in London did you uh, generally try to have a a somewhat close relationship with the sommeliers well I don't even think we even knew what the word was (laughs) right okay like I think, you know, I mean, not like at... Um, or have, at least have some influence. Yeah, well, a lot, what, a lot. What, what, I was what? still buying wine. Like, I, you know, when I was at the Adelphi with Jeremy Strode when he was there, you know, Simon Denton mm. was the restaurant manager. 
So Simon's got a great palate and, you know, he'd be buying all these wines and I, he'd go, you know, you knock off, let me try something. And then I'd go, well, I'll buy a case or I'll buy a six pack. And yeah. so I, that's how I basically accrued my salad because obviously you're buying it at, you know, LUC price, price as well, yeah. which is nice as opposed to retail. So sure. the little perks of the industry. So that's sort of why I, you know, invested my time and energy and money into that. Mm-hmm. But also on that, my one day off a week when I was at with Jeremy, I went and offered my services free to Walter's Wine Bar. Yeah. So I just rocked up one day, said, you know, they won best wine list in the country at the time in the Tucker Seabrook Awards. This is going back now. Yeah. And I said, I want to work one day a week. You don't pay me. Just teach me as much as you can about wine. And so after my first shift, I think Walter Burke came up to me and he said, are you seriously working here for free? Mm. I said, yeah. And he goes, you work in the kitchen with Jeremy? And he goes, yeah. He goes, yeah, no worries. So he really took me under his wing and every night there was always some great bottles open and Mm -hmm. they ended up paying me. But I said, well, you'll get the money straight back. And they said, what? I said, everything I'll put towards Mutt. So I just... I just ha- mostly built my cellar up from that in sure. the day. Where were you keeping your wines? Uh, we're still keep it actually. I've got a private cellar on, in Racecourse Road in Flemington, underground. Oh, cool. So um, just keep it there, and yeah, I'm sure there's uh, plenty of exciting things. Well, it's there. good. You know, it's good. It's it, I look back, and as I said, you know, taste change, and some of it, those wines I don't drink anymore. Um, but you know, I mean, I was buying, you know, I was buying Jasper Hill retail for $24 a bottle back then mm-hmm. you know Mosswood Cabernet was I think I paid 20 for the 04 94 sorry for the 94 I think I paid $24 a bottle mm. and you, you know it's crazy and then that boom obviously which if you want good segue to go to the the boom of the Parker Eyes in the mid 90s in Australian wine and you know the um, Grange winning best wine in the world and I think it was 96 for the 1990 Grange and you know, that's what really exploded. Um, but around that time, that's when Wild Duck Creek from uh, Duckmark mm-hmm. got 99 points off Parker. Yeah. And I suppose to refer to your question or what you were saying about alcohol before, I think pre-96, everything pretty much was always well under 14 degrees. Sure. After 96, there was very, very little wine, if any, that were under 14. Because Wild Duck Creek ended up getting 99 points. Sorry, it was for the 97. It got 99 points off Parker. And I think then back then, everyone just started copying their neighbour. And they just go, oh, rich, more, more, you know. They were forgetting about why the ones were, were able to age because they had natural high acidity and they were fresh and they could keep. And you now look at them, you know, those ones that were modern-day vintage ports. And I think, yes, they, you know, wooed people especially early drinkers. But as I said, I don't think it's what – I don't think it is what made Heath get famous and I don't think it will make Heath get famous. I think it's more – I think the styles that more represent, you know, the piece of dirt. Sure. I think that's the unique thing about Heathcote. Sure. Um, so for me, that's part of the reason what the attraction for Heathcote because um, the diurnal swing, the very old soils – um, you know, adequate, just adequate enough rainwater, um, lots of topsoil, you know, down to four metres in some parts. So the vines really have to dig down mm-hmm. um, and allows them to, you know, a lot of the vineyards to be dry grown as well. So I think they're the important things for Heathcote, which sometimes get overshadowed by, you know, big ripe blockbusters. So, mm-hmm. um, so 
even working um, different vintages in in other parts of Victoria, um, you know, over in, in France, yeah. you, you ended up back uh, in Heathcote working at Heathcote Winery. Yeah. Um, but this was still whilst you were working as a sommelier at the lake. No, house. no, no. So basically, I finished cooking up to two, and then three, four, five, uh, two, three, four, five. I was a a cellar rat, you sure. know, traveling the world, making wine. Then after that, that's when it sort of started. Like 05, I worked in a restaurant in Melbourne uh, with Lincoln Riley, who ended up becoming business partner in Foster Rocco. Sure. Um, and then I worked for Andrew McConnell. So I worked for Andrew McConnell at 312 for two and a half years. Yeah. And then from there, then I went to Lake House as food and beverage manager and SOMP. So, so in between that time, I think from 2005 to 2010, I was on the floor working as a SOM. So, but you started sort of tinkering away and playing with your own wines. At this yes, point. I'd already I'd already made my first ceramic. So sure. I think well the the good thing with the people I worked with, one of the conditions of my employment with them was that I took one month off a year leave without pay. Right. So I could go and make them for vintage. Exactly. So okay. I would take a month off, go and make my wine over that month, then tinker it on my days off, mornings off, whatever, and then go back to full time work. So that's basically what I did for I don't know, that five years thereafter. And what were the first experiences you had sort of making your own wine? Like, did you have a, a an idea about you know, how you wanted to do it? Or, like, had, had yeah, you had Yeah, I experience? think I always had. I, um, you know, I really, I think I always in my head was single vineyard. And yep. it was, I think once I'd worked at those wineries, especially the bigger ones and, you know, the blending of this and the blending of that and doing the and trial. And see the different passes and sort of how they Yeah, made. but... And, you know, the trialling, like, you know, do the acid trial and do the fining trial and do the tannin trial. And I was like, this is all far too hard. Like, yeah, sure. So I sort of had a knee-jerk reaction to it. I was like, I don't want to do that. I just want to grow or have someone grow really beautiful grapes that I want to eat. Yeah. And I'm going to turn them into wine. Yeah. So I think for me, seeing all that in the bigger wineries was really good because it really cemented what I wanted to do. Sure. I just wanted to pick a grape off the vine that I wanted to eat. I wanted to eat it, and I do eat lots of them over vintage. Um, and then I pick them, and I take them to the winery, and then I let the wine do itself. So sure. I think for me that was more important, really about a sense and place and really being hands-off and not manipulating. Because once once you do one of those trials, there's so much more you can do. Like, mm-hmm. And that's the part that I was like, this is never-ending. Like, you know, And the whole idea to make the perfect wine I think is absolutely impossible because sure. – you you can't make it and you know the great old winemakers you talk to when you go to Europe they go I just got lucky with my 78 or my 61 or my you know my 99 or you know that's just that's what say it just was magic in that year and I think there's something nice about that as opposed to always trying to make the same standard of wine every year as opposed to be more consistent so well also it's the same issue with you know chasing points it's making yeah exactly exactly you know and that uh, for me and you know don't get me wrong i'm more than happy for anyone else to do it but for me it was really i wanted to i think that's what cemented what i want i want i just wanted to you know single vineyard wines um that hopefully speak of where they come from and you know, made with made with love, and uh, made with nothing nothing added to it. So I think that was the real the real eye opener for me seeing seeing these styles. And I suppose going back to the stylistic thing, I was inspired, obviously from Cote Rotie. You know, um, I worked with two producers that use 
next to nothing in Viognier. So, but one of them, or Pierre Gaillard, he did. But I came, I suppose, seeing some techniques that they were doing that no one in the, well, I'm not going to say no one, but I hadn't seen it. And mm-hmm. not many people were like cold soaking, you know. Mm-hmm. So I started doing, you know, five-day cold soak. And so what's the benefit of cold soaking? Well, this, this it, is basically... Yeah, uh, so pick grapes, grapes, put in a fermenter, yeah. put the chilling on or put a, you know, a, a chilled flag in it or put it in the fridge or the cool room for a couple of... Whatever you have. But to really cool it down, so below, say, below 10 degrees. But is, so is it's it not pre fermented. or post-crushing? Uh, uh, well, you've got to get the... However your means to get the grapes cold. Yeah. Could be pre or post. But I, I would do it when they come in sure but um but that depends you know uh, well i have done it the other way as well obviously chill them then de-stem them so um the whole idea for me back in the day was when you see it have really you know especially in europe because sometimes their color is not good so they do it because they get really great color Mm -hmm. they're still plunging it and pumping it but there's just juice it's just you know they're just rotating the juice around. So, okay. but keeping it at a, at a low temperature. Yeah, they're keeping it below ten, so it won't start fermentation. Exactly. And so normally they add a bit of sulfur at that stage as well, because that will retard the you know the ferment. Yeah. So by doing that, um, then they um, yeah. So you just keep it on the skins, and the part of the reason I liked about it, I always thought it really gave a lot of mid palate texture. It always really extended the mid palate. It, it wasn't like a wine that had just started fermenting. It always had a bit more. There was more going on. And the other thing, the wine's in contact or the grapes are in contact with each other for longer time as opposed to, you know, like at Torbrick, we were pressing stuff off after five, six days. Yeah. So I sort of like that whole extended more ferment, or well, pre and post. So, yeah. But not many people were doing that in Australia as well. They were, you know, pressing straight after ferment or even before ferment, you know, so there wasn't that time on the skins. Yeah. Um, and they're sort of some of the techniques I liked. I, I was, I've never added yeast to a wine I've made still to this day. Mm-hmm. I was very adamant that I wanted it to be, you know, its own, its own yeast. Um, and just, I think things like that, only ever French oak. I've never bought an American barrel. I've never not used anything but French. Um, so little things, you know, they, you roughly, you know, for Cote Roti, then general, generally about 20 to 20, 30% new oak. So I sort of went with that at the start with the Heathcote fruit. So I think at the start I was influenced by what I'd seen and what I learned. Cause ultimately that was the only education I'd had. There was no university. There was no nothing. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I, I did buy the art of making good wine, the Bryce Rankin. Yeah. No, yeah. That from my Everyone days. does, but. That's my problem why I didn't go to university because I said I didn't want to make good wine. I want to make great wine. Sure. And that's what that book teaches you to make good wine because it tells you if your pH is here that you need to do this. And I was really against all that. I was like, well, not that I was against it, but I didn't. I suppose it's my naivety that sort of took me down that path. But I was like, but in Europe they have pHs of nearly four and the wines are great or, Mm -hmm. you know. And that was the really thing that hit home. I think in Australia we – the winemakers I'd worked with and seen were very, very, very good winemakers. Very technical winemakers. Correct. But they didn't understand their piece of dirt. And that, when you go to Europe, they're not very good winemakers at all. You know, they're quite dirty, They, you know, where you work, but they understand their piece of dirt. But and again, that, that's the distinction between a winemaker and a vigneron. Yes, exactly. Yeah, but I was working with winemakers. So, mm-hmm. you know, and yes, there were vignerons over there. But I think that was the big difference. And... Um, 
to see that and come back with, you know, doing the two vintage year was a real eye open. It was like, okay, now, you know, I started getting things because at the start you didn't know why are you pumping it over? Why are you doing that? You know, mm-hmm. you don't really get it until you've done a vintage. Sure. And then it sort of all hit home. And then after a couple, you go, okay, now I get this. So I think for me, that was a really good point to see multiple vintages over, you know, multiple vintages and multiple, you know, in different areas as well. Were you sort of looking at your cellar or wines you were enjoying a lot more and kind of almost reverse engineering them, trying to find out what, if you know, if there were common um, common themes or philosophies yeah. or um, techniques yeah. between those wines? I think I still do it. It's sure. just don't think they'll ever, you know, you try a wine, you go, oh, you know, wonder how they got that or what they did to that. Or, yeah. And, you know, and I think, that's what got me to sort of where I am now and using a lot more, ho- using lots of whole bunch. Sure. Back in the day, there was nothing. Everything was totally de-stemmed. Yeah. But I was also putting Viognier in for the first three vintages. Yeah. So I was putting the Viognier in because that would give me my perfume and lift. Yeah. But now I'm doing whole bunches because it does that and does a lot more. So sure. I think over the time I started looking at what wines I liked, I'm like, I really like that style. I really like that style. And then you go, ah, they're 100% whole bunch. Yeah. Ah, they're, you know, a very high percentage, a whole bunch. I was, they're the little things that keep tick, ticking away going, I get it. That's obviously, I like that style. Yeah. You know, and that's sort of what you do the experiments, do that, do the trials um, to see, you know, see how far you can take it. So I think, yeah, honestly, and still to this day, it's, you know, every bottle of wine I look at or taste, I'm constantly thinking that, you know. And the experience as a chef, that, that kind of plays into yeah, the kind that of wine you want Without a doubt, just the, I suppose, attention to detail in flavours and textures mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was, you know, you, you can't learn, you can't be taught that. You just, you know. But also that appreciation of the raw material and exactly. how that, yeah. and, and sort of looking at it and having an idea about, okay, if I do this, this, and I combine it with that, it'll end up with this, same yeah. sort of thing with the wine. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. You know. Mm. Um and it is, you know, I've, over the years, I've, you know, I, I, I suppose, you know, I'm not going to say invented, but we've done a few techniques that no one's ever done. But I think that's the whole idea because always think outside the square. Sure. And every time I make a bottle or make a wine or buy, you know, have grapes to make a wine, I always think with a chef's hat on. I don't think on with a winemaking hat on. Mm-hmm. So I always think, how can I get more flavour? What can I do to get more flavour? Yeah. Without, you know, without... You know, reverse osmosing or but also anything. How, how how can I best capture this flavor? Exactly, exactly, and that's they're the they're the things I suppose. What have all that knowledge that's circling? All those questions I ask myself every day. All those wines I've tried and have, you know let the light bulbs gone off. They're all part of I suppose where I am today, mm-hmm. and it's sort of that keep changing that evolution. And how did you come on the name of Cerami? Uh, pretty simple. Obviously, Syrah, um, S-Y-R-A-H, um, is the French word. Well, every other country in the world uses it at um, Bar Australia, called mm. for Shiraz. And the other was, um, because the H is silent, you know, so that um, A and then the H, A-M-I, with the silent H, is Ami, which is mm-hmm. French for friend. Sure. So friendly Shiraz or a friend of Shiraz. It's a made-up word. I wanted something that was sort of respected the people I worked in France for for four years and respected the people I worked in Australia for four years. Yeah. 
I still call it Shiraz. I don't want to call it Syrah because I think we are in Australia. It's, it's Shiraz. That's what we call it. Um, yeah. And obviously, you know, calling it Cirami Syrah would have sounded a bit funny. So, but um, that that's basically, yeah, the, the name, the reasoning behind the name. And you were very much into um, having the expression of every vintage and every vintage being different. And yes, you, I think in the past you gave every, every vintage, vintage a, name. a different exactly, name. exactly. And you, you still still doing do that? it, um, especially with with the Cirami. Um, every wine has always had a different name. Yeah, I just for me, and you know, again, no disrespect to three eight nine, you know, um, or anything, but they always try to make a style. That's sure. Um, you know, yeah, they'd love to produce the same one every year. You know, I'm sure they'd love to make a non-vintage, you know, mm-hmm. it's just mm-hmm. that it's always consistent. Mm-hmm. But for me, I wanted to know what Mother Nature give. I wanted to know what that piece of dirt, I wanted to know what I was, I want to sort of, you know, get across to the customer that they know what I was thinking or they could understand the story, you know, or why I did it this year. And, and every single wine I've made tastes completely different in yeah. every vintage. But that's, I'm excited by that because that's what, the wines of Europe, you know, most of the wines of the world are like, you know, mm-hmm. they are, they do change. You buy one, one vintage and, you know, it's that philosophy, you know, you, you, you drink the ones that are ready now and you keep the ones and, you know, and that's where I find, and I've found that now, particularly with me, once I find a producer in the world that I like, yeah, I generally buy it every single year regardless. Because you're excited to sort of see how exactly. the, the philosophy and, and, and that side might yeah. express in a different different conditions. Yeah. Different so once a winery's got me, I'm a very good. I'm very loyal. So because you know it's well, like well, there's a there's a hint for all you winemakers out there. Yes. So <laughs> that, that's that's the thing. Once I start, once I like something, I want to see it. I want to see you know, and sure. a lot of and I and you kind of look forward to the release with great anticipation. Yeah. Going, exactly. Oh, I'm so yeah, I mean, there's wines. I you know, there's wines. I you know, some French wines I buy. I, I have not even touched a vintage, like I haven't even opened the O4s yet. Yeah. You know, I haven't even, I've got six bottles of every vintage and I yeah. haven't even opened the O4 because yeah. I'm like, they need time. That's, I know these wines, don't touch them until they're 10 years. Sure. And that's, that's my, you know, and I'm just, I'm lucky that I can take my hand off them, but that's what I do. I, sure. And I think that's the important thing because once you see it, then you really start to see the changes and you see more of the vintage character. And I think, um, you know that that's what I like. I like I like you know like to feel what it was about. So you've um, I see you've brought along uh, a little something uh, from Cirami. Yes. To show me, um, that's very exciting. <laughs> uh, actually, it's been a little while since I've tried the Cirami wine. Uh, um, what have you brought for me? So, 2013 Demi. So Demi is meaning half in French. Mm-hmm. So the whole idea of this came about with the 2011 vintage. As we know, in Victoria slash Australia, it was very wet, vintage, very cool. Um, I always look at 11, I call the year of what you didn't put in. The good winemakers, what they did to make really good wine, it was about what they didn't put in as sure. opposed to what they did put in. Sure. So I really looked at vintage, and I'd never up to that point declassified a barrel of ceramic from 2004 to 2010. Mm-hmm. But in 11, I was like, no, don't like that, don't like that. I thought, oh, yeah, I'll just tip it down the drain, da, da, da. And then I sort of realised it was over 3,000 litres. <laughs> and so 
I thought that's an awful lot of money. I've spent, made, bought oak for it, done all that. So basically I put it in a tank, I blended it, tasted it, I went, that's delicious. Mm-hmm. So Demi being half, so but the whole principle, so, and I always thought I was only ever going to make it once, um, blended it, it was literally half the price of ceramic, half the new oak, and half the whole bunch. Sure. It just happened to work out that. And I went, Demi it is, you know. Um, so that's how the name came. So now I've done it since 11. I did in 12 and this is the current lease 13. So Demi, if in effect, has kind of been a way to isolate the absolute best. Correct. So what it, what it has absolutely done is just now, because no one's seen these ones, it has elevate Cirami to another level. There's, you know, lots more going on in the wines because there was some stuff that I... In the past, maybe I didn't want to put in, but I did. Um, and that was probably to deal with more that, you know, every single bottle was counted that I needed the money to then pay for the next one, sure, and pay for sure, that sure. barrel and pay for the bottling. Where now it's, you know, because cash flow is better than it ever was. And it sort of, it made, it made a point that now I can get something out really early, really fresh. Let's call it, say that bistro. This retails about $25 in the bottle shop. Yeah. Where Ceramis 55. And realistically, you know, no, no, you don't drink $55 spot. bottles every day of the week. No. You know, well, I don't. And I know my friends don't. So this was a way of sort of giving something maybe a little more approachable, release it a little fresher, you know, um, had the things I love, you know, a lot of brightness, freshness, um, gluggable, you know, really drinking sort of wine. So in that same way, um, in terms of sort of declassifying fruit, yeah. does it also mean that you can keep the Cirami wine a little bit longer Correct. from release? Exactly. Sort of wait till it shows a little exactly. bit better. So the other thing I did in 11, which was really unique, after I bought the grapes and I'm making it and they're fermenting, I'd already bought six brand new French oak punchins, you know, about two and a half grand each. They're all paid for. They're sitting there. And then I got started looking at the 11 and really thinking about the 11 while it was on skins. And I was like, I'm not using any of them. Mm. I thought that would be too much sure. for the wine. So I rang the people I buy some oak from. I said, uh, I think I need that 2,500 litre barrel. He said, no worries, I can get it to you a week. I said, done. Uh, at the time, it was a $17,500 mm-hmm. barrel, um, which I couldn't afford it, but I knew it was the best thing for the wine. Sure. So I bought this bigger oak, Fudera, as they call it, or Botti in Italy. Italy. Um, and now... I've bought my second last year. So now that's where Cirami's really going. It's yeah. going down that bigger oak for longer. Yeah. Then Cirami, my current release Cirami is 2010, but that's sure. because I released the 11 before the 10. But early next year or when the 10 runs out this year, the 12 will come out. So yeah. basically so it's hard. And now yeah. giving all Cirami from now on will be three years minimum, years old before release. Right, okay. Which is what I always wanted because I think, again, going back, we drink wine far too young in this country. So I really want it to be. So basically, Cirami 13, I've just blended two weeks ago. Mm. So that will sit in tank for probably another month or two. And then I'm going to uh, then bottle it um, in a couple of months. And then that will be released, well... What would it be saying if it's 2013? It'll be released in 16. Sure. So that's the way forward now. So back in the day, I was making, like in the 2009 vintage, I made 750 dozen ceramic. Yeah. With the 13, there's only 330 dozen. Yeah. But it's 
all. But but what but what there what there is possibly looks better because you've yes. had the opportunity to exactly. keep it a bit longer. Yes. And, it's the best and these are all the things you learn along the way. You go, oh, that looked better. I kept it in oak a bit longer this year. You and sort of understand why wineries have sort of different levels. Yes. And then they can release one wine exactly. a bit earlier and get a yeah. little bit more return, uh, you know, exactly. so invest back into the next vintage. Yes, exactly. Because, um, you know, you you know, if you tell that, you know, at the moment I'm talking to a bank, but anyway, let's not go down that path. <laughs> but I'm telling them, oh, I've made my 13. Well, I've even made 14. And they go, oh, well, when will you release your 13? I said, 2016. And they go, why don't you release it now? I go, well, I could, but wine I don't want to. I want to do it because I want the wine because to Because this is not Bordeaux en primeur. <laughs> yeah. Well, one day I wish. That'd be good. <laughs> um... No, but that's what, yeah, and, and it, it is lovely to see it so vibrant, so bright and fresh, yeah. and it really does have that yeah. kind of aromatic quality. So there's, there's half as much whole bunch in the in the Demi. The it was like. in the first year, but now I, because I, I literally thought I was making Demi in 11 and I'd never do it again. Yeah. I just thought, but I sort of realized that people do like what I'm calling you the inexpensive wine being at 25 retail. And restaurants really like it. So yeah. it was an overnight success. The wine sold out in a heartbeat and I had like 300 odd dozen. I was like, this works. So literally the next year, 12, I doubled it. And then 13, I've nearly doubled it again. So I'm now making about a thousand dozen of this now. Mm-hmm. But it's all, I, and the one thing you said before, which I'll pull you up, is um, it's not declassified fruit. It's all exactly the same fruit. I make it exactly the same way. It's just I'm declassifying the barrels after a certain time. Oh, okay. So I'm making it exact. Everything is made exactly like I make ceramic. Right. But now I'm just going through tasting the barrel. And I put the blend of this together in December. So, you know, it was only picked March. Yeah. Gone through everything. And then I'm blending it. And then I bottled it in February. Okay. So it's what it does is then the wines I've got, it's like, okay, that's now ceramic. Right. So, you know, where all the rest get blended, it sits there, comes out early release. So. Okay. Uh, and so the 2013 has just been released? No, I released it the day after bottling. <laughs> oh, okay. So, <laughs> so it's out there. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's more than half of it's gone. There's only, you know, a couple hundred dozen of it left now. But that the whole idea was that, A, it did give me some pocket money, especially while I was at Vintage, because I still make every bottle, bottle every bottle, you know, make all it all, but I also sell it all still. Yeah. So I'm still the guy beating the restaurant door saying, would you like to buy my wine? And okay. So I'm still doing that in Victoria. I've got people selling it in New South Wales and Perth, but in Victoria I'm still doing it. And I yep. still love it. I yep. don't want to give that up. It's yep. just um, for me, you know, because total production's 1,500 dozen yep. for ceramic. So it's not like it's, you know... But you're not. But Ceremony is not the only winemaking project. No, exactly. Yeah, we have some other projects. Yeah, Foster Rocco. So, so tell me. um, You mentioned Lincoln Riley before. He's your business partner in Foster Rocco. Foster, Foster, obviously, being your surname. Rocco is uh, Lincoln's nickname. Nickname. Yeah. Um, And what was the idea behind that project? Well, that's a little bit different. Yes, very different. So Foster Rocco, hundred percent Sangiovese. So, so this Link- is going all the way back to that initial wine education with Trembart and Taylor when yes. we first got introduced to the Italian Exactly. Wine. But what happened is Lincoln and I worked together at a restaurant at the time. He was my boss at Upper and Lower House, which was a Paul Mathis restaurant at the time. Um, we worked together for six, but every time we caught up, Lincoln and I, we'd always be drinking something Tuscan or Sangiovese. We just, it, we, then we, it really hit home how good these wines are with food. Sure. Savory, high-toned acid. You know, obviously, you know, f- 
very grippy tannin structure for food. Mm-hmm. It all was tick, tick, tick. So Link realised as a Bendigo boy like me, oh. we actually realised we grew up across the road from each other. Oh, that's weird. Very weird. And I'm a couple of years older than him, so I grew up across the road from him. So we thought two Bendigo guys, like Sangiovese, so we tried to find some Bendigo Sangiovese to know of to Excuse me, to no luck. So what I um, did, I knew of a vineyard in Heathcote, and that's how it started. We bought five ton. We made. I wanted to make some rosé because I hated Australian rosé because they were always so sweet. Yeah. I wanted rosé that were dry, savoury, lots of texture, and there was very little at the time. Like mm-hmm. you could count them on one hand, the ones that were dry. So I really wanted to make a dry, savoury rosé with Sangiovese, and then we made a red, like a you know like. I'm not comparing it, but just say like County Classico sort of level. That was in our eyes. Just mm-hmm. a really good every day, you know, lot, lots of tan and lots of things we like. So, and then basically just grew. And then the rosé was a big hit. And then we started making more rosé. And so, then, so there was a fairly immediate kind of response. Yeah, it was really, it was amazing. It, the response was obviously Link and I were in the industry. We knew a lot of people, which helped. I'd had ceramic, had a couple of, you know, four years track record people like that style that i was doing so i think it was really it was a it was a great success in the way um but we stuck to our guns and we only wanted to do sangiovese like it was very easy to make a shiraz under it or make something else that was more commercially viable but the whole idea for us was let's make sangiovese that's what we love that's what inspired so now there's four wines so there's a sangiovese rose sangiovese nuovo so a sort of a our play on a Beaujolais. So think Beaujolais, but made with Sangiovese. So really juicy, fresh, crunchy, uh, unoaked, and released mm-hmm. always 1st of September. Okay. So something really primal, really earthy, yeah. really soft, really, you know, but to drink young. Mm-hmm. Then um, we a make... Bit of a sa- quaffer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then um, then the Sangiovese, and then we make a Reserva. So, and this is sort of goes to our commitment of what we want to do. We've only just or early in the year, released our 09 Reserva, and that's the first wine. Mm-hmm. So we've kept it deliberately for five years before release because that's what we thought the wine needed. And that's been the great thing about the Frosty Rocco and the Ceramic Project is because Link and I both have day jobs, we can just treat the wines exactly how we want. Yeah. So our current release, Sangiovese is 11. Um, so, with you know, uh, it's got minimum of three years of age on it. So just those things, we're not, you know, we're not, we haven't got a... We haven't got an accountant breathing down our neck saying, you need to release this, you need to release it. So, uh, and that's been now really well received, now selling, you know, all over Australia, now starting to export. So, really? Yeah, which I can't believe people are buying the Sangiovese grape from Australia. But no, exporting to Japan just started to, or about to start to America. They're taking the rose. So, yeah, being very interesting. But, um, and how how did people kind of, find out about obviously I always cease the mains about that you know it's just that thing obviously you you guys are fairly well connected particularly in terms of hospitality and sommeliers that kind of thing I think you know like this week you know I've got an email from a woman in South Australia saying I tried your wine your rosé on the weekend I'm in love with it I'm in Adelaide how do I get it yeah And that, what I, I love that. And that's the sort of, I suppose, that's power nice of the to internet. Be connected it's to, really yeah. good that people, you know, an email and go, yeah, no problem. More than happy to sell you some wine or, sure. you know. So they're the things I, um, 
that are really good about, you know, the industry. I think from that, you know, someone came over from America, obviously tried the wine, spoke to someone else, and I I don't know. I, sure. don't, I don't know how the American, you know, they go, oh, we need to buy this rosé now. And it's like, wow. sure, you want to take an Australian Sangiovese rosé and yeah. sell it in America. So yeah. it's an odd concept, I think, you know, especially when America is very big into Italian wines. Yeah. So, yeah, do you think that there is really a lot of really great uh, Well, I've only been in New York and... Oh, and rosé. I th- I Especially not I, th- I think it's ha- like French rosé yeah. possibly yes. is yeah. a little Bandol, bit more consistent. Provence. Yeah, yeah totally. Exactly. Totally agree. But Cabal. you're right, actually. Yeah, exactly. But but Italian rosé, it, like yeah. it's stylistically, it's yeah, you're, like you're right, actually. huge area. And quality-wise, like... I could I could count on one hand the number mm. of great Italian rosés. Having said that, yeah. the Italian rosés that are great are amazing, yeah. and I I actually think that Sangiovese is the best variety for rosé yeah. because it offers so much. It has the perfect balance between fruit acidity and a savoury edge to it. I yeah. love that kind of that tomatoey character yeah. of Sangiovese. So nice. I think yeah. I think it just offers so much to the rosé style of wine. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Adam. No problem. Um, what's the, the best way to people to, to, to get in contact and, and also to, to find your oh, wines? Yes. Um, well, obviously the websites, um, www.cirami.com.au or www.fosserocco.com.au um, or I suppose most fine wine retailers for all the wines. Mm-hmm. So um, more the independence, um, you will definitely find, well, you will find the wines or if not, direct um just google my name my number comes up i probably shouldn't give it out but (laughs) it easily comes up so my mobile number you just call me and say i need some wine and that's no problem as well so and people can follow you on twitter twitter yes monsieur foster is my twitter handle um and and what's the other one instagram foster rocco has a yes foster rocco has one too sorry i always forget about and then on instagram it's it's actually adam foster i think oh there you go adam foster yeah i think that is I always oh. keep, I can't keep up with it any. <laughs> well, thanks again. No, thank you. It's been great. Thank you for having me on. Uh, guys, as always, you can follow me on Twitter at IntrepidWino or you can follow the podcast at The Vincast. Uh, please do visit my website, uh, IntrepidWino.com. Uh, and do jump onto iTunes or Stitcher. Subscribe to the podcast so you can get the latest episode. I do appreciate you uh, reviewing and giving it a rating if you can. Uh, please do give me some feedback, ask some questions, um, you know, give some suggestions for some suggestions for uh, future guests would be fantastic as well. But until next time, bye.